Matthew 13. Now, I'm not sure if we're in a position to do this, but if we could give you anything that you would want, I mean, what would you want? I mean, just just lay it out there. I mean, is there anything you want? I mean, would you like a, a beautiful home? Uh, maybe some of you are like, you know, I'd like to have, I'd like to be completely, perfectly fit. I'd like to have no health issues. All right. Uh, what other things might come to your mind? If you could have just anything you wanted. So, some of you might like prestige, power, more money than you could think of, wonderful vacations, um, to be just stunningly beautiful. What would that look like? I, I mean, just some of you, what, what do you want? Well, how many of you like to be like the president of the United States? Is that just, no. Okay. I, I see a lot of, Okay, so, uh, all right, well, maybe uh, a daytime manager at Toys R Us. Is that better? Okay, I mean, what is it that you would just want? If you could say, you know, I would just really be happy if I had this, 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 this. What would that be? What would it take for you to truly be joyful? What's holding you back? What do you really need? Well, let me ask you this. Uh, If we could go to heaven. And you could have all the splendors of, of anything that, that's joyful, perfect. You could see wonders that just would awe-inspire you. And you could see friends and family members that you love. Let me just ask you this. Would you find that you could be satisfied with heaven without Christ? When I asked you about what is it in life that you really would want that would just make you so joyful and just overwhelmed and you'd be really happy? It's the one missing piece. If I could just have this. How many of you honestly were thinking what I what I really need most in life is Christ? Or when I talk about heaven, you're like, oh, family, joy. Oh, awesome. Angels. Would you be content with heaven apart from Jesus? Friends, I, I want to ask you this because this is at the heart of the issue of life. And that is, what will you do with Jesus? Because if you feel like you could be fine with Jesus, if you could just have all these other things in this life, you are completely missing it. You are what the Bible would say was is lost. If you feel like you'd be great in heaven... Apart from Jesus being there, you likely will not be in heaven because that is where Jesus is. And somewhere along the line, we have we've grown accustomed to trying to find our joy, our happiness and our satisfaction apart from Christ. And Jesus says it simply cannot be you and I. We were designed by God. We were actually created in his image. He's made you and I for him. And if we're going to have joy in life, purpose, fullness, hope, it is only rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so my question to you is, will you truly have Jesus as your king? And will you be a disciple of the kingdom? Or will you go your own way? Well, Jesus is going to drive home this point. He is going to crystallize the importance of us truly having relationship with Christ when you open up the Bible in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. I am so glad that you are here this morning because Jesus brings this issue, the issue of life, to the forefront. He talks about his kingdom. 
Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we were as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, you've noted in Matthew chapter 13, he starts addressing the kingdom of heaven is life. The kingdom of heaven is God's realm and rule. Now, he is the he's the universal ruler. He is presently reigning in the universe. He is worshipped by the angelic hosts, the, the multitude of angels. He is reigning in the hearts of truly all those who know Christ. And one day, his son is going to set up his earthly kingdom. Just like he came the first time, he has promised to return. And when he does, he is not only going to be reigning in the universe, he is going to reign on the earth. And so Jesus is describing his kingdom. And Jesus and the kingdom of heaven are going to bring some ultimate realities. And the first one that he emphasizes, he does so by telling two parables, and that is that his Christ, Jesus, and his kingdom are going to bring the ultimate joy to those who believe in Christ. And so, as per usual, as we've moved into Matthew 13, ever since the Jewish religious establishment rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah, Jesus says, that's fine. You want to... Basically, say that I'm aligned with Satan and I, the powerful, miraculous works that I do is because I'm in league with the devil himself. If that is your answer, then I am going to turn to parables. In my parables, I'm going to reveal further truth to my disciples. I'm going to conceal it to unbelievers and I will fulfill prophecy because it is prophesied that the Messiah would speak in these story forms. Now, a parable is to take something familiar and lay it aside something that is not familiar. Jesus took physical uh, realities, pictures that they knew very well, and he taught spiritual truths by laying aside spiritual truths. And he's going to continue that here in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, now let's talk a little bit. What, what's going on here? Jesus says, I want to tell you something. The kingdom of heaven is like a man, and he actually, he's, he's running around, and he's in this field, and he finds this treasure. Now, how many of you running around your farm field or your ranch, have you stumbled upon great treasure? Probably not. You might have hit a gopher hole or some other things that you stepped in and stuff like that. But treasure, no. But let me just tell you what it looked like in Israel. You see, before the days of banks and safety deposit box and boxes and, and great protected vaults with armed guards, you had to have a way of keeping your valuables and your great riches. And so what did you do? You have to hide them. Now, sometimes they'd actually have these like hidden vaults that they would dig underneath their house. They may have a hidden closet. But the most common means of hiding and protecting your wealth was to bury it in a field where only you would know or whoever you wanted to know. And so that's what they would do. And this was this was how they protected their wealth. But you have to remember that in Israel, for hundreds and hundreds of years, this was kind of like the war zone. And so when you had uh, people coming in and invading you, like the Assyrians or the Babylonians, when they moved in, if you've got wealth and you want to protect that, what do you do? Well, they would go and they would bury that in the field. And they would know exactly where it is. And what would happen, though, sometimes, though, is that if you were on a journey and you died and no one else knew about where you hid all the family wealth, it just remained in that field. Or if you were hauled off to Syria or to to Babylon, 
and you never came back, that treasure would still be in the field. And so really in Israel, there were hidden treasures all throughout. And even today, there still are treasures. And every once in a while, they stumble upon them. The people in that day knew about this reality. The poor people, just like people like, oh, I just hope I'd win the lottery, which if you're thinking that way, please don't. That's a terrible waste of your money. But they thought, oh, if I just win the lottery. okay? well, they would think like if I could stumble upon the treasure or a treasure, I would be amply supplied. And so Jesus is taking something to be very familiar with. They're talking about a, a person. He's a man and he's he's working in a field. Now, he obviously doesn't own this field because we find out a little bit later that he's going to go and buy it. Maybe he's a laborer. Maybe he is someone who's passing through. Maybe he's tilling the soil. Maybe he's picking out rocks so he can plant seed for next year's crop. But somewhere along the line, he runs into this treasure. Maybe he just sees some sort of part of a chest coming out. But somewhere along the line, he finds this treasure. And so what does he do? He can't believe what he found. He, he digs it all up. He hides it again. And for joy, and that's a key word, joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Now, some of you are going, man, what is Jesus doing here? Uh, He's using something that sounds kind of unethical. I mean, he should have just gone and told the owner, like, hey, I just noticed that you have a huge jackpot of gold and all this wonderful silver and stuff sitting in your land. And you're thinking, like, why is Jesus using a story that sounds a little bit unethical to illustrate spiritual truth? Well, let me tell you, first of all, what the man does is, is actually not dishonest. Or unethical. So what he did, though, he see, if he went and approached the owner and said, I'd like to buy the land. Now, if the owner had known that that treasure was in there, do you think he'd, he'd leave it there? Like, oh, OK, sure. And I'll just like, by the way, I'm going to leave, you know, this great treasure for you. No, he'd, he'd take that out. See, the owner didn't actually know it was. And let me tell you some other thing. According to rabbinic law, you actually if you found treasure or came across coins or money, you actually could keep it. That was the law. That's how things worked. And so as people are traveling all around and going here and there, if they should encounter a treasure that just simply didn't seem to belong to them, I mean, if it was fenced in or something and you obviously knew that you can like, well, I just kind of found this. But no, if it was obviously something had been lost and had been there for some time and it didn't really have an owner, you were free to take it. If this man was truly dishonest, you know what he do? He just like, well, I think I'll just dig it up, take it with me. And, and he, no, but he doesn't do that. What he does is he says, this is of such great value. Everything that I do have, I'm going to sell so I can buy this field and I can have this treasure. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is once you discover the joy of knowing Christ, peace with God. Forgiveness, life, hope, eternity, healing, help, strength, power. Once you come to see Christ for who he is, the promised Messiah, the redeemer of the lost. Why, there is no greater joy than to be in relationship with him. And anything that we have pales in comparison to Christ. And until we come to that reality, we're going to be enamored by the things of this world. Our little trinkets, our little cars, our homes, the color of our grass. We're going to be enamored with the things of this world when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. 
And it's not that you have to like, well, you got to give it all for a trade. Like, I got to sell all my stuff. Think of if you had to sell all of your stuff. For some of you, that would be amazing. I mean, that's a lot of stuff that you got. A lot of money. It's not like you're going to make a trade like, oh, I liquidate all my assets and then I get this. Hmm. I don't know. Actually, when you see Christ for who he is, the offer of salvation, hope, eternity with him, there's no comparison. It's not that you have to earn your way or buy your way into heaven. That is not the emphasis. The emphasis is the joy of having Christ and the kingdom. And I want you to notice something. This guy just stumbled upon it. Was he out looking for a treasure? Did he have one of those little scanners there? He's like his little metal detector. You know, I mean, it's really interesting. They like little headphones. I'm not sure what the headphones do, but, you know, they have this. And you see him along the beaches. Was he doing that? Kind of just cruising through. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just looking for treasure. No, he wasn't doing that. He's either doing his job or just passing through, and he just stumbled upon it. Friends, a lot of your testimonies match this parable you weren't looking for christ kingdom salvation forgiveness you're out doing your job trying to raise your kids maybe you were just playing sports maybe you're just a fellow student and classmate of someone but someone engaged you with the gospel someone had a conversation with you you heard a message on a radio someone passed you a cd you're like cruising the web and you came across some sort of message you listened to it and the gospel of christ how you can have relationship with God by turning from your sin and trusting Christ. All of a sudden, you just stumbled upon it. And Christ drew you into his kingdom. You see, the kingdom of heaven will be just like that. Now, think of some of the people in the Bible. That's how they came to Christ. You're familiar with a guy by the name of Paul? His, his former name was Saul. Think of Saul in his younger days, back in the day. Was he looking for Christ? Well, not exactly. He was looking for Christians, namely to do what with them? Tie them up, take them to prison, watch them die. In fact, he was collecting coats. First time they killed this, the first martyr, Stephen. Yeah, he was, he was looking for Christians. He hated Christ, Jesus specifically, and he hated these Christians. And then God all of a sudden just knocked him off his little donkey or horse or whatever he was riding that day. And he drew him to himself. He stumbled upon the kingdom when he wasn't even looking for it. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She had some issues, right? Some pretty serious sin issues. But she's just doing her job. She's just going to get water for the family. And she encounters the source of living water, Jesus himself. And he not only confronts her about the sin in her life, he welcomes her to put her faith and trust in him. She wasn't looking for Christ that day going to the well. She just stumbled upon it. Remember in John chapter 9, there's a man who's been born blind, and Jesus comes up and he puts clay in his eyes. He says, listen, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. I want you to go wash up. He does. Whoa, I'm seeing. And, and even later, he actually comes and confesses that Christ is the Lord. Well, on that day, like every other day, a day of total darkness and hoping that someone might just help him or give him a little bit of food to eat. Was he looking for Christ in the kingdom? No, he's looking for a handout. He's looking for someone just to help him. And one day he stumbled upon the kingdom and Christ drew him in. Well, friends, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who stumbles upon a treasure. 
And he realizes the tremendous value of knowing Christ. And it pales in comparison to the stuff of this world that so quickly entangles us and keeps us from him. In fact, you're like, hey, there is no sacrifice too great. If this stuff is in the way, I will liquidate it for the joy of having Christ unhindered. Well, Jesus says there's another parable that's just like this. It's related to the great joy of of knowing Christ in the kingdom. He says, verse 45, and the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Now, here we have a merchant. He's a wholesale dealer. He's dealing in pearls. Pearls were like the diamonds of biblical times. They were considered like like great wealth, highly valuable, very desirable. And so this this guy is a pearl merchant and he is running around and he is looking for fine pearls and he discovers one pearl of extreme value. Now, they were very valuable because pearls were hard to get. OK, you just didn't little manufacture a little aquarium or anything like that. These guys on the coast, they would dive down there and get these oysters Many of the many people died just trying to get oysters to get the pearl outside of them or they ruined their health. They were extremely valuable because they were hard to get. And and it was pearls was one of the way to actually put your wealth in a very small form. You could sew it into your garments. Jewish and Roman women uh, would wear them like in their hair. They'd wear it like in jewelry. Uh, Now, they sometimes go to extreme. The the Roman emperor Caligula, uh, his wife. She was totally into pearls. I mean, they had massive amounts of wealth being the rulers of the empire. And so she would put it all throughout her hair. She had it on her neck. She had it on her wrist, on her hands. She would have pearls anywhere she could put pearls on. She'd have it. She could have been a fill-in for like one of the pearly gateposts in heaven. Okay? She just had it. Because she just had wealth. And so that was a way of displaying your wealth. And so what they would do is they'd wave it in their clothing. And, the, and this merchant, though, for instance, he knows pearls and he finds one particular pearl that is extremely valuable. There were pearls like this. We know about it. Cleopatra, she owned two extremely valuable pearls, each one of them estimated to be in the cost of millions of dollars at that time. This particular merchant, he sees a pearl of extreme value. He says, I must have this. And he liquidates everything he has, including all the other little pearls, just so that he could have this one pearl. You see, pearls were extremely valuable. To find one of great value would be a tremendous treasure. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 7? He says, don't cast your pearls before swine. What is he talking about? You see, the pearl is the gospel and the related truth all about Christ and his teaching, you don't just throw that anywhere. That is of great value. This, this merchant, he finds this amazing pearl. He says, I've got to have this one. And so he sells everything and he buys it. You know, in contrast to the, the first guy that's just kind of stumbling along. and What's this? Oh, this great treasure. This guy is searching and he's seeking. Many of your testimonies, you have been looking. Some of you have tried a lot of different religions. You've gone through the New Age gamut. You've tried Buddhism, Muslim faith, and you've thought about perhaps, you know, I wonder if I wonder if these folks over there in India have something going for it with their Hinduism. 
You tried all these different little approaches. But you're looking for something that truly satisfies, that fills your heart, that God-shaped vacuum. And it's found only in Christ and his kingdom. And once you find Jesus, you realize that indeed he's the promised Messiah. He is the God-man. He is the man of God. He's incarnate, the son of God. He's come to rescue you and redeem you, to release you from your sin, to fill your life. Why, he's worth everything that you have. And you see people in the Bible that have done this. Like you find that Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, he's coming back. This guy is a Gentile convert to Judaism. He's studying Isaiah 53. And Philip intercepts him and explains to him what he simply doesn't understand. He explains this text, Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant. It speaks of Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah because he has just suffered and died for your sake. In fact, he rose again like Isaiah 53 even speaks of. He'll see his offspring. And the man believes. Or you've got like a Gentile by the name of Cornelius and the centurion. And he's praying every single day. And finally, God sends Peter to him to proclaim the gospel to him and his family. He's been searching and seeking like that merchant for that just extremely valuable pearl. And once he finds Christ... In receiving him, there is great joy. See, the kingdom of heaven and knowing Christ, it is far superior than anything else in this world. And if you don't know that or you can't see it, it's because your eyes are blinded or you still feel that pull to find your satisfaction either in your circumstances or your collection of junk or material goods. When Jesus says, it's found in me. And my kingdom. Uh, One of the inquisitors during the inquisitions of the 14th century wrote an account of of a particular Waldensian preacher that they had nailed and apprehended. And I don't know what they did with him, but he wrote the account of what this guy was doing. This particular Waldensian preacher. Now, all you had basically in the 14th century is you had the Roman Catholic Church. But you had some people like the Waldensians who had come across and understood the gospel and they were trying to proclaim Christ, and to do so, they basically at the peril of their own life. Well, this particular guy, what he would do is he was a merchant, and he'd show up with jewelry and fabric and artifacts and some different trinkets, and he'd show up in a particular village and at a manor, and he would announce that he has these goods, and so anything from the slaves to the masters, they'd all come to see his stuff. And while they're kind of looking at all his stuff that he, and his wares that he has, he'd say, but I have some Things that are of great value. I have pearls that you could not hardly buy. They're of immense value. He'd, he would just keep floating that in the conversation. And they're like, well, yeah, this is nice stuff, but well, I want to see that. What, what are you talking about? And then he would go on to explain to them Jesus and the kingdom. In fact, he would contrast the pure gospel to just religious rules and, and giving of money to support alms and, and to pay off uh, people to get them out of uh, purgatory, he's like, now let me explain to you the greatest value of life, the greatest treasure, knowing Christ. Friends, what is your greatest joy in life? Is it really Christ or would you know, I think I'd just settle for treasure or pearls. See, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's like this. British Prime Minister Tony Blair, he wrote in his, his memoir, A Journey, My Political Life, that book that came out in 2010, In the opening preface, he writes of a friend of his. His parents were Jewish to escape all the hardships of Europe and looking for safety. They came to America. 
His dad died when his friend was just very young. His mother continued to live on. They lived very poor. His friend uh, eventually became extremely wealthy and very successful. He offered mom many times an opportunity to travel the world, but she would never leave. She was just so thankful and so glad to be here in America. When, when, this, when his friend's mother died, they went and put that safety deposit box and to go and to actually retrieve these jewelry, that, jewels that she had collected over her life. And, and when they got in this, this box, they discovered there was another box in there. And they didn't have a key for it, so they're like, wow, something extremely valuable must be in here. So they pulled that out there, and they had to drill through that lock to get in there. And when they did, they noticed that there's something that was all wrapped up in there. So they started taking all this wrapping, and there was more wrapping and more wrapping, and finally they came down to a single envelope. They opened that envelope up, and inside that envelope was just this one document, her U.S citizenship papers. For her, that was the most important thing in life. Friends, what is most important to you? Is the most important thing to you Jesus and his kingdom or something else? Money, prestige, power, position. It's your family. Your car, your house, your motorcycle, what, your vacation you can take. What is it? You see, Jesus is emphasizing the most valuable riches of life is found in Christ and his kingdom. Well, see, I told you that the Christ and his kingdom is going to bring about some ultimate realities. First of all, knowing Jesus is the ultimate joy of life. But Jesus is also going to bring this. You see, Jesus and the kingdom of heaven will also bring the ultimate judgment to those who reject Christ. Jesus is the ultimate joy for those who know him. But if you reject him, you refuse him, however you do it, whether you're just kind of passive about it or you're just outright in rebellion toward God, you need to know that that will bring the ultimate judgment. Notice this next parable, he says. Notice verse 47. And the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea gathering fish of every kind. Okay, a dragnet. Most of us have not fished with a dragnet. Let me just tell you what this is. They have this, these big, long nets. Now, they would either do this with have two boats, and they pull this net across. They had cork on that top part, on that top rope, on the head rope. And then the other part of it, they had on the bottom, they had these sinkers. They had weights, okay? And they would drop that net. That could spread, you know, from 750 to 1,000 feet, and they'd drop that net, and then they would encircle it, and they'd capture everything in. Or if they only had one boat, they would actually have part of that net fastened at one end on the shore, and they'd just kind of make this big arc, and they would take that net, and they would pick up every single thing. You got every kind of fish, weeds, junk that people threw off, anything you collected it in the drag net. It picked up everything. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. They'd be very familiar with this. Sea of Galilee, they saw this all the time. Some of Jesus' key guys were fishermen. They're like, hey, we know all about what you're talking about now. He says, and the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. It was cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And verse 48, and when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. This was an everyday scene. And so they get all these fish. Now, 
good fish and bad fish. Well, well, for the Jewish people, God made this really easy. Okay, he didn't have fins and scales. Okay, they had all these unclean ones, clean fish. And what they did, they throw this, throw this away. They, they were unclean. No one ate them. They were, they didn't consider them good for anything. They just threw all that stuff away. On the other hand, the good fish, the fish that they could eat, well, they put in containers. Now, if it was a, they had containers, they actually kind of functioned like live wells where they'd fill them up with water and they'd put these fish in there to keep the fish alive and they'd haul them off to distant places. Or if you're going to go to some of the neighboring villages, they would actually just put them in baskets and they'd go and they'd be on sale in the market that day. Very soon. Fresh fish. And then all the other stuff just got thrown away. They're all, man, we totally understand this. And Jesus says, let me tell you, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, you need to know at the end of the age, when I return, when the great judgment comes and it's talked about in Revelation chapter 20, I will separate the righteous, those who truly have me, who are declared right by the basis of faith. And they have a behavior that reflects my character because they're united with me. In fact, my life is being lived out with them. The righteous, they're declared right before God on the basis of faith. I'm going to collect and I'm going to keep to myself. Those who have rejected me, he actually says he calls them wicked. Because they have actually spurned the very design for who they, they've been made for God. They have spurned the very, their very maker. Wicked. Not speaks, and speaks not only of a condition of their heart, but at sometimes even their behavior that comes from their heart. He says, they will be thrown into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is somewhat troubling. We don't even want to generally even think about this. We oftentimes don't even talk about hell. There's kind of a trend or an emphasis in today's modern Christianity to just keep it positive. I mean, think about it. We're going through a tough time in our country. You don't want to hear about negative stuff like hell, fire burning. Come on, that's archaic. Jesus says, it is the ultimate reality for those who reject me and my kingdom. The loving thing to do is to tell people the truth, not to try to tickle their ears and keep them happy and somewhat content, but living in a deceptive state. You know who talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible? Jesus. As a warning, you absolutely do not want to go there. And this will happen. It it is a situation of dire circumstance. It is ultimate eternal destruction. And he says, there will be a great separation. Those who are my own, those who have come to trust me, who are entered in the kingdom, who know me, who love me, who I am their greatest riches and their greatest resource in life. They're going to enter into the joy of the kingdom. But to reject me, that's, that could be you sitting right here. To reject me will be to dis, be discarded. And he says, he actually describes it. It's a furnace, a fire, and it is weeping. You will always be in agony of the rejection that you gave and the gnashing of teeth. It's just like it tears you up and there is no relief. 
And this is the reality, friends. Right now, at this present time, the dragnet, it's actually being closed. And sometimes people brush up against it, you know, like little fish, and they feel that net like, whoa, what's that? Man, I'm going to get away from that. And they feel like they can just swim off and they can get, glad don't have to think about that anymore. This whole idea of judgment. What got into that guy this morning here? What is he talking about? Mary, I'm back settled in my own little routine. I don't have to think about matters of eternity. Or on the gospel of grace, people say, Jesus offers you life, forgiveness, joy. You hear about it and you're like, or maybe you go, you know, I might try just a taste of that. Just enough almost to inoculate like "Hmm, that was nice. But no giving of yourself to Christ. He's not really your greatest joy. You'd like to have him on your terms if it could be a fire insurance policy. And you'll think about him about that much. But the dragnet one day is going to be closed in and there will be a horrendous separation. It's horrendous for those who reject him, but it's ultimate joy for those who know him. There was a a young rock singer who was asked, you know, what what are you going to do at the end of your career? You know, what what are you going to do? And uh, she she responded, I'm going to die and then I'm going to go to hell. What? I'm going to die and go to hell. And she's like, and he's like, why are you looking so forward to death? And she goes, hey, hell is going to be fun. And when I die, I'll go to hell and hell will be fun. That is ultimate deception. You and I with our finite minds simply cannot comprehend the destitution and the devastation of hell. We can take Jesus' words at face value and you try to picture the greatest amount of pain and separation and heartache. Just like you and I have a hard time comprehending the joys of heaven. I mean, we just we're grasping at it. We simply cannot comprehend how devastating hell will be. And so Jesus, what he's doing is just like you would tell someone who's in a house that's on fire. or If a bridge is out, you give a warning. That's what he's doing with this parable. He's saying the net is closing in. Time is now to enter into the kingdom. And God is going to judge sin. You know, if you're wrestling with this, like, how does he do that? God and his wrath. And you're like, well, I like that God is love, but I don't like that God is wrathful. And how does that all work? And so I'm just going to avoid the wrath, focus on the love. Right. Let's keep it hallmark. I got a hallmark God. But think about it. Think about like the atrocities like like Rwanda, for instance. You got about 800,000 people that are all hacked up and slaughtered in about 100 days. Or all the different villages over time and cities have just been destroyed by people that are ruthless. How do you think God responds to that? Do you think he's like, like a look at that? Do you think he's going to go kind of like in some sort of grandfather way? Like, Ooh, they're not getting along and they're not getting this. I see all the inherent goodness in them and I'll just try to work with this situation. Or do you think that God is grieved greatly? He is grieved tremendously. And he is going to bring judgment upon any devastation of that, that people bring about to people that are made in his image. You see, God is going to judge sin no matter how it's manifested. Whether it's manifested in atrocities, racial uh, prejudice, child abuse. However it is, but furthermore, it's not just these heinous sins that realize like, whoa, of course God is going to judge that. God is going to even judge the sins of the heart. 
all this internal immorality that goes on, lying, stealing, taking advantage of people, destroying them, hurting them, callousness toward those who have been made in his image. God will judge because he is loving. He actually loves his people. And he's going to be judgment upon sin and those who will not turn from their sin. He, if you will not repent and turn from your sin, you will face judgment. And you've got God's guarantee on it. You see, the kingdom of heaven will be the ultimate judgment for those who reject Christ. Well, let me just tell you one other thing. You and I, we, we are forced to make a decision. Come to some conclusion. You see, Jesus and the kingdom of heaven will bring the ultimate question to those who hear Christ. And the ultimate question of life is, what will you do with Jesus? Well, verse 51, Jesus approaches his men and he says, hey, have you understood these things? And they said to him, well, yes. And Jesus said to him, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Jesus, remember, Jesus says, I will teach you. I will grant you knowledge. You will understand. You see, if you're a disciple of the kingdom, you hear these parables. You hear them explained. There is an understanding. It goes beyond just like, yeah, I got it. But there is a response. It is an understanding that leads to change of conviction and behavior. I understand. Therefore, therefore I live differently. And so he says, do you understand them? They said yes. And that's exactly what Jesus promised. If you're my disciple, you will understand my truth. and It will change your life. But Jesus then commissions them. He says, if you're a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, you're like the head of a household. You're to be bringing out truth, truth from the Old Testament, prophecies that were meant to accentuate who Christ is and also to bring out things that are new, new teachings that Christ is giving, like in these parables or on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're like, well, what does that look like? It looks a lot like what Matthew is doing in his gospel. Showing from the Old Testament how that which is written prophesies and points to Jesus. And so he says, you who are disciples of the kingdom, you and I have been commissioned and entrusted with this message to bring it forth. Friends, there is an ultimate question that faces all of humanity, each person. What will you do with Jesus? We'll look at this in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Verse 54, he came to his hometown. Where was his hometown? Where did he, where was he raised? He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, right? And he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? You see, Jesus makes now a second trek since he's moved to Capernaum, that's kind of where he set up home base, right along the Sea of Galilee. He goes back to Nazareth. Remember, the first time he went back is in Luke chapter 4. And he went and he was teaching in their synagogues. And how well did that go over? The people just loved him, right? A hometown boy done good, right? Not exactly. They didn't like what he's saying. They didn't like what he was, what he's calling them out. He didn't, he basically confronted them on their sin. He's identifying that he's the Messiah. And so they decide, you know what? We need to get rid of you before you get too dangerous. And they actually tried to kill him by running him off a cliff. Jesus, because he came to fulfill a mission, was managed to elude them without 
being harmed in the least bit. But Jesus goes back to his hometown one more time for them to truly come to know God, to understand relationship with Messiah. And he goes back to his village and he goes and he starts preaching in their synagogues. Now, this is how it worked. Synagogues had leaders. If you were a traveling rabbi, and there were quite a few of them, they were always looking for a traveling rabbi and a guy like Jesus, man. Everybody was talking about Jesus. They would invite him to come and to speak. And so he got opportunities to speak in their synagogues. He would proclaim the exact same messages that you see written in the Gospel of Matthew, calling people to examine your life, calling people to repentance, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's message. That was Jesus opening statement. He was calling people to faith, to life, to growth, to joy. Well, he makes these messages and they were astonished. And they said, and look at verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom? I mean, this is amazing. No, how in the world did that happen? Because Jesus never went to rabbinical school. I mean, he didn't go to their quote unquote seminary. So how in the world did he get so smart? How do you know so much about God? You never went and studied around with these key rabbis down in Jerusalem and these miraculous powers. How in the world do you do this? I mean, all these healings, people that are once lame, now walking, seeing, people that are hearing. And, the, and then, of course, when you raise someone from the dead, that is going to make waves. How did you get these miraculous powers? And this is, look at their argument there. This is why they didn't get it. Verse 55. This just can't be because you're the carpenter's son. Is this not the carpenter's son? You're the guy. You work with tools. Remember, you're a stonemason or you're a woodworker. Your dad. That's what he did. How? You can't be the Messiah because we know you. You're from our town. You're from Nazareth. And then they said, and furthermore, you know, is not his mother called Mary? We know your mom, Mary, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We, not, we know your brothers. And, and by the way, the whole idea of Mary being a perpetual virgin and, and never having any children, well, that's kind of flies in the face of verse 55. Like, we know your family. We know your brothers. And then furthermore, we also know your sisters, verse 56, and his sisters. Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? We don't get it. How did this happen? And what happened is that they are stumbling over the fact that they know Jesus and they're familiar with him. And on that basis, they reject him. The Jewish people knew that Messiah would enter into humanity. They actually knew where he'd be born, Micah 5-2, Bethlehem, which should have been a key because that's where Jesus was born. And they knew that he would enter into humanity and that he would do miracles. It's just that they had the idea that their Messiah was going to be a political ruler, a military might, and Jesus didn't fit the bill. He kept talking about this spiritual kingdom. He kept calling people to himself. He never once laid a hand on a soldier except to maybe do a healing. That didn't work for him. And so they found small reasons to reject Jesus. And I want to just make a note of something here. There are like pseudepigraphal writings like the the Gospel of Thomas or the infancy Gospel of Thomas that they have these stories about Jesus in his childhood. Like he would like make these clay birds and then he would like wave his hand over it and the birds would fly off. And there's a lot of people that believe these kind of myths. Well, if Jesus really did those things then they would expect that as a man, he'd be doing the things that he's doing. 
No. The reason they're rejecting him is like, we know you. There's nothing overly special about you when you're a child. We know your family. And so they find a reason to reject him. And that actually happens even today. The lost look for reasons to not believe. And you, if you do not know Christ, you will always try to find reasons not to believe in Christ, even when you're faced with the realities of his miracles, his credentials, his identity, and the wisdom that he presents in his word. You're always looking for a reason, just like the people of Nazareth. Because, you see, the most important question of life is, what will you do with Jesus? Well, they, verse 57, they took offense. The word literally is translated scandalizo, scandalized. They tripped over him. They, they would not have him. But Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, in his hometown and in his own household. In other words, what he's saying is like, you know what? You reject me because you're familiar with me. You reject me because you're focused on some of the superficial. You will not truly see me for who I am and what I've done. And that is the case for a lot of people. The lost are always looking for a reason not to believe. And you know what? The world offers you a million excuses. I won't believe because the church is filled with hypocrites. I don't like the preacher. Oh, one time some Christian did me wrong. And, and you always have this or how can I believe in Jesus? Or how do we really know the Bible? Or what about the dinosaurs? You have all these little lame excuses that go thrown out there. When Jesus says, what will you do with me? You know, when the skeptics and the atheists hold court. God seldom intervenes. You know that? God seems to like the role of the invited guest rather than the party crasher. And so in verse 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. God seems to to desire that when his people desire him, he works in their midst. And because there was they were hardened by unbelief. Jesus chose not to do very many miracles there. You see, God knows even when the world is shaking their fist or living in total rejection or rebellion toward him, he knows that the gospel is going forth. It is going forth this very day. At the same time, the dragnet is being brought in and the time of judgment will come. The question is, what will you do with Jesus? What is it going to be for you? Joy or judgment? It all has to do with what you will do with Jesus. Did you guys uh, see Joshua Bell in town this past week? Some of you did, right? That great violin player. The guy's awesome. He was with the, played with the Waco Symphony. I, I heard some of you got pictures taken with him. How cool is that? He was in town. He was hard to miss, right? But you know that he was completely missed a few years ago? In 2007, January 2007, he played in the Washington, D.C. Metro next to a trash can. And he played his three million plus Stradivarius, Stradivarius violin. And he played these beautiful pieces like Mozart and Schubert. And he played them with perfection. You know, just three days prior to that, he totally sold out the uh, Boston Symphony Hall. People for the worst seats paid a hundred bucks and it just went up from there. His open violin case, you know how much he collected after over a thousand people passed him by? He played for 45 minutes? About $32. You know why? They missed him. 
They didn't see him for who he really is. And friends, that is the plea and the call of the gospel. Don't miss Christ. Trust him. Know him. Love him. Don't get enamored by your sin. Trust in Jesus. You don't want to miss the master. So my question to you is, what will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the amazing clarity of your text. You've given us these parables that we might see what the kingdom of heaven is like. Your word cuts down to the real hard issues in our life. You tell us how it really is. So, Father, if there is someone who has come today who has never trusted Jesus, they perhaps got three or four reasons they felt like were pretty good until they came here today for not doing so. Would right now they pray with me and say, Lord, I finally see. You've opened my heart and my eyes. And I turn from my sin and I trust Jesus now. I thank you that you've given me new life in him. Help me to understand what it means to be a disciple of your kingdom and to go your way. Lord, for all of us, may we be mindful that we're disciples of the kingdom. We're not just supposed to hold this truth and hold it dear in our heart. We're also to hold it out for the people in our lives so that they too might know the joy of knowing Jesus. For that is the greatest joy of life. And so we thank you for him and for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.